I don't know if you know this, but we're two months into the sabbatical. One more month to go. And he listens on podcast. Hi, Adam. My name is Dan. I serve as one of the elders here. Our passage this morning, we already read some from it, is in the first chapter of Philippians. If you've got the, the Pew Bible, it's page 921. And the title is The Gospel Works on Encouragement. We had a, a preaching class with, with Ben, and one of the things he pointed out was, I need to wait until you find it in the Bible. <laughs> Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers, deacons, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of God. Do you remember when we used to write letters? I mean, do you remember the days before email and texting became ubiquitous and before everybody carried a, a cell phone on their person? Back when... Long-distance calls were too expensive to just pick up and call whenever you felt like it. Do you remember when we used to write those personal letters with a pen and paper, and we mailed them to our friends and family who weren't close by? Think about it for just a moment, those of you who are old enough to remember, and those of you who are not too old to have forgotten. What did your letters say back then? What did you write about? How did you feel when you got a letter from someone special? By any chance, do you have a stash of old love letters away somewhere from 40 years ago that you wrote when you were courting your spouse? I just happened to have a letter that Kevin wrote to Karen that I thought I would read. I'm just kidding. Am I in trouble? <laughs> Some of us wrote letters back and forth uh, when a loved one was in school or serving in the military or, or traveling abroad. And some of us were accustomed to writing overseas to our missionaries. Perhaps some of you still write letters in the mail today, but I think it's become rather uncommon. 
We still send cards in the mail for birthdays and special occasions and thank you notes. In fact, I walked to the mailbox this week and sent a birthday card to my daughter. She lives in Dallas. Well, why would Candy and I buy a card and go to the trouble of putting it in the mail to her? We hear from our daughter almost daily on the phone anyways. Well, doesn't it feel just a little bit special when you receive a card or a note in the mail? I don't mean to turn this into an advertisement for Hallmark, but when someone takes the time to put something in the mailbox, somehow it adds a little more emphasis to the thought that they care and appreciate us. When our friends and family hold that card or that note in their hands, it's a physical and tangible reminder that we're loved and that we're valued. Our scripture reading this morning is just such a letter that Paul wrote almost 2,000 years ago to a group of believers that he cared very deeply about. Now, if my nostalgia about letter writing sounds a bit familiar to you, you may remember that Pastor Adam made some similar comments when he introduced our study in the, in the first John series back in January. So I just want to acknowledge that Adam, Adam's message could easily have inspired my thoughts here. But to put our passage in context, Philippians is a letter recorded for us now in the Bible that the Apostle Paul wrote to encourage a church that Paul and his companion missionaries had planted in his travels through the Roman world in the first century. Paul founded many churches uh, shortly after the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And while Paul sometimes spoke to Jewish audiences, he primarily focused on non-Jewish audiences people not from a Jewish, Jewish background, like most of us. Many Bible scholars have concluded that Paul wrote this letter while he was imprisoned in Rome. Paul's companion, Luke, wrote in Acts chapter 28 that Paul was under house arrest in Rome and that he had freedom to teach and preach and meet with people there in his home. Paul wrote or dictated many such letters to the early churches during his ministry, including the times when he was in prison. Some of Paul's letters are preserved and some of them are lost. So why are we reading Paul's mail? Well, Paul's letters were typically shared broadly with other churches for the benefit of Christ followers everywhere. The things he wrote are helpful to all of us. Paul addressed this letter to the church that he had established earlier in the city of Philippi, which is modern-day Greece. Then it was Macedonia. Philippi was a busy Roman colony. The city was founded long before as a retirement community for military veterans. It might have been several times the size of Camden. But by Paul's time, it was probably a diverse population of Greeks and Romans. The lack of any mention of a synagogue there implies that there weren't many Jews. Paul in Rome was separated by hundreds of miles by land and sea from those he was writing to in Philippi. Letters and communication in those days would have taken many weeks to deliver. This letter is in part a missionary report from Paul to the Philippian church for their faithful in supporting him in his church planting ministry. We won't get into much of it today, but Paul took the opportunity in this letter to encourage the Philippian believers to follow Jesus in godliness and humility to strive for Christian unity, to stand firm amidst their trials, and to guard against false teaching. 
The title today, as you can see, is The Gospel Works on Encouragement. I think of Philippians as one of Paul's most upbeat messages. The Philippian church he planted had grown over 10 years to become healthy and mature. They stood firmly in the truth and in obedience to Christ. It was not a perfect church. No church is perfect. They faced both internal and external challenges. But Paul didn't call out any major problems in this church as he does in his letters to others. Paul's tone was warm and encouraging. He shared uplifting words of hope and reminders of God's promises. The Philippian church was a source of joy to Paul. Joy is a recurring theme in this letter. Paul rejoiced over his brothers and sisters in Philippi. Paul shared that he himself had learned to rejoice in all his circumstances, good and bad, to rejoice even in the most difficult circumstances amidst trials and suffering, to rejoice even when his life was on the line. And Paul wanted, his, Paul wanted the followers of Christ everywhere to experience that same joy. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But here's, here's what you should know this morning. My brief summary of the message this morning is care, prayer, and share. Care for one another, prayer for one another, share encouragement for one another. I want to talk about Paul's heartfelt care for his spiritual brothers and sisters in Philippi. I want to look at his prayer for them, and I want to look at how he shares encouragement with these fellow believers. Let's see what lessons we might draw for our own church life that can help us understand how the gospel works on encouragement. But before we continue, let's pray and ask God to speak to us from this passage. Lord, God, guide my thoughts and words this morning. Apply your word to each of our hearts and minds by the direction of your spirit. May only that which is true and edifying, and which uplifts your name, remain. Amen. So let's begin by diving into this passage. I hope you have it open because I don't have it up on the slides. Um, in the first verse of Philippians 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Jesus Christ who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Paul writes alongside Timothy, who was also ministered with Paul when he was in Philippi. Timothy has a similar bond with the believers there. Paul refers to himself here as a servant, or more accurately, as a slave of Christ. He forgoes the title of apostle in this instance. He sees himself as belonging to Christ, bought by Christ, bound to Christ, the title of servant also invokes the Old Testament idea of servant of the Lord, a title that was applied to leaders, prophets, and kings in the Old Testament, Israel. This title of slave is in keeping with Paul's subsequent ex ex exhortation here towards humility in Christ. Leaders of the church are called to be servants. In later verses, Paul, Paul holds up Christ as our model of servant leadership and humility. And Paul refers here to the believers as saints. 
Through faith in Christ, those who follow Jesus become God's holy people, sanctified by Christ and set apart for God's purpose and mission. We also note that the Philippian church plant now has a leadership team in place with deacons and elders, although Paul later speaks to the need to continue to work on unity in that team. In verse 2, he gives the greeting, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's reference to grace encompasses our salvation and all the abundant blessings that we enjoy from God and Christ. Peace is the Jewish idea of shalom, which means wholeness and well-being. Paul desires this grace and peace. Everything that God has done for us, everything that Christ has secured for us, to be fully realized and experienced in the lives of believers. He goes on to say, I thank my God in remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Paul remembers the Philippians. We know that Paul's second missionary journey took him through Philippi. The events are recorded in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 40. I won't read them. But Paul first met a God-fearing merchant named Lydia and some other women who were meeting by the riverside for prayer on the Sabbath. Paul led Lydia to faith, and her household was baptized. Paul and his companions stayed at Lydia's house. And Paul later cast out an evil spirit from a psychic slave girl there, which was bad for the psychic business. And it caused a big uproar. And Paul got arrested So Paul was in jail the first time, 10 years ago, when he was in Philippi. And Paul is in jail now in Rome as he writes this letter. So Paul has some jail stories. In Philippi, Paul and his partner Silas were praising and singing to God in jail when an earthquake broke open the jail. Paul led the jailer and his family to faith in Christ, and they were baptized. We, too, have a prison ministry here at Chestnut Street but we do it through evening Bible study and without the earthquakes. And we like to go home after the meeting. After leaving Philippi, Paul passed back through Philippi several more times in his travels, but he didn't get to visit with the Philippians all that many times. He kept moving along to spread the gospel in other places. But now writing as Paul is mindful of his past experiences in Philippi, His thankfulness here focuses on the people and the work of the gospel, not on anything material. He prays for them. In the ESV translation, which we read um, and which you have in front of you, Paul says, I'm praying for y'all. Am I the only one who thinks that sounds a little bit southern? But I think it's supposed to be plural because he's praying for the whole church so you know what that translation would be I'm praying for all y'all that that sounds good but since we're in mid-coast Maine I, I think the local translation would be I'm praying for you guys that's not you guys we're not Long Island here I'm praying for you guys well it doesn't matter how you say it The point is that Paul is praying for them. When Paul prays and remembers them, it brings him joy. What is this joy 
And how can we get some of that? Well, Paul's not talking about a warm, happy feeling, although that might sometimes be the case. Commentator Matthew Harmon writes, Joy is a deep-seated confidence and delight in God and his promises that transcend circumstances. I'll read that again. Joy is a deep-seated confidence and delight in God and his promises that transcends circumstances. Paul's joy is rooted in God's faithfulness and God's ongoing work in our lives. In verse 5, he writes, in regards to his thankfulness and joy, it's because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The word here for partnership is koinonia, which some of you may be familiar with. Koinonia includes the idea of fellowship, but it's more than just being together. It's more than just having something in common. Koinonia exists only in Christ, only among recipients of God's grace. We fellowship together in submission to Christ, in service to one another, and in sharing Christ's suffering. The word implies a fellowship around an active, working partnership. In this case, the Philippians are partnering with Paul through their material support for his ministry and through their shared participation in proclaiming the work and person of Jesus Christ. So what does this partnership, this koinonia, look like in our lives? Would koinonia be found in in home groups or maybe in nursing home visitations, in music rehearsals, in flipping omelets, in repainting the back fire escape? I feel like one of my first koinonia experiences at Chestnut Street was being involved as a centurion with Walk Through Bethlehem five years ago. I hope you won't miss out with partnering together in Walk Through Bethlehem this year. Where do you find your koinonia, your active partnership and fellowship in the gospel? Paul goes on to write, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Notice how Paul mentions the beginning of faith in the past, the ongoing work of the gospel in the present, and our hope of Christ in the future. Paul is confident, and we can be too, in looking forward to ultimate glory and sanctification. The good work of salvation will be completed in us because God is faithful who is able to complete it. This good work is the transformative work of Christ in our lives. Paul reminds believers that the end is surely coming. Paul wants us to be mindful of the future because it impacts our priorities in the present. Christ has already secured the victory for us. And that should change our perspective on everything. Moving on in verse 7 and 8, he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, 
because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers of me with grace, of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. How does Paul feel? Well, the original word for feel here refers more to how Paul thinks, his mindset, even his worldview as it relates to the Philippians. Paul has them in his mind and in his heart. He shares a close bond with them. They evoke joy for him. The words yearning and affection communicate the sense of strong desire and emotion. Christ's love for the church has become Paul's love for the church. They share a bond that is both general, as fellow recipients of God's grace and God's blessings, and it's a specific bond. They support Paul in prison and in his preaching of the gospel and his defense of the truth. They also share a bond in their mutual suffering for Christ and in standing firm for the gospel, each in their own place. He goes on to say, it is my prayer in verse 9 that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Paul prays that their love may increase. And I understand that to be both their love for God as well as their love for one another. He prays that this love would be accompanied by understanding and by wisdom. He says in verse 10, so that, it, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul prays that they would be rooted in the truth, standing for what is right, living for the risen Christ. Approving what is excellent suggests being able to discern and to choose not merely what is good, but what is best. Paul wrote elsewhere, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. To be pure and blameless is to submit both thought and action to the Lordship of Christ. Paul expressed a similar thought in Romans 12:2 when he said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then in verse 11, he prays that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's desire is that believers be transformed by the Spirit. Paul's prayer is that they would produce God-honoring fruit to bring glory to God's name. So now I'm going to bring it around. We've done some digging into the passage. Going back to the summary and the three points I mentioned earlier, care, prayer, and share. Paul cares. Paul cares deeply for his brothers and sisters in Christ. He reflects joyfully on the time that they had together. He gives thanks for them. He is invested in their lives. He values them. He has great affection for them. He considers them his partner in ministry, in grace, and in suffering. He knows their material and spiritual needs. He's a spiritual father to them. He rejoices over them as a proud parent. Paul planted the gospel seed in Philippi, and it has grown and flourished. He's eager to support them with his ongoing guidance and encouragement. He longs to see them again, and he desires to see them continue in their faithful walk in Christ. Paul cares. 
Paul cares very much for the Philippians, and he writes to them that he wants to sh- them to share in the joy that he has. But like us, both Paul and the Philippians face trials and challenges. Paul himself is in prison. The Philippians have experienced opposition as well. They face challenges to the gospel and the threats of internal division. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, we read the Philippian believers were confronted with a severe test of affliction. I don't know what that is. And that they experienced extreme poverty. But Paul did not despair of his circumstances. And the Philippians did not get derailed by suffering and opposition, by the challenges to unity in the early church, by discouragement from the difficulty of living out their faith with humility and godliness amid a secular culture. It would be easy for both Paul and the Philippians, and for us too, to get hung up on our circumstances. But Paul makes the choice here to turn care into prayer. And that's the second point, prayer. Paul prays for the Philippians. He prays for their needs. He prays for their love to abound, for growth in knowledge and discernment, for purity, for faith, for fruitfulness, for all that will bring glory to God in their lives. And Paul writes later, do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And he also wrote, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Paul's answer to difficult circumstances, Paul's answer to any circumstances, good or bad, is to pray. In this way, Paul puts the focus on God, not himself, not his own sufficiency, not his own interests. Paul entrusts his brothers and sisters in Christ in Philippi to the Lord's care. Prayer is how we exercise our faith and demonstrate our dependency on God for our own needs and for the needs of others. The trials and obstacles we face sometimes seem bigger than God. It's easy to stumble or just get too busy, take our eyes off of Jesus and to focus on troubling circumstances. Sometimes it's difficult to trust God to triumph over our circumstances. When we don't trust God with our circumstances, we're essentially denying that God is God. We lack faith. But God is God, and God is good. Paul prays for the Philippians, and he trusts in God's power and goodness to complete the good work of salvation in their lives. Prayer brings great joy in the realization of God's perfect provision for all past, present, and future needs. So Paul cares. He is faithful in his prayers. And the third point is simply Paul shares encouragement with the Philippians. Paul shares this letter of encouragement that we're reading. He tangibly expresses his joy and appreciation for them. He demonstrates his commitment to the relationship he's built with them. He shares his specific prayers and desires for them. He sends these encouraging words, even though it may take months for the message to be physically delivered. And he also plans 
to share encouragement by sending his colleagues, Timothy and Epaphroditus, to visit the Philippians when Paul himself is unable to go. So in summary, we've seen that Paul prayed joyfully and earnestly for the Philippian believers that they would grow in love, knowledge, discernment, purity, and fruitfulness to the glory and praise of God. Paul was faithful to care for and to pray for his brothers and sisters in Christ. He shared written encouragement in all his cares, prayers, and encouragement. Paul was joyful in celebration of what Christ had already accomplished and joyful in his confidence in what Christ would do to meet the needs of those who would trust in him. We, too, can follow Paul's example, praying for, appreciating, and encouraging one another joyfully and earnestly toward love, knowledge, discernment, purity, and fruitfulness, all to the glory and praise of God. I could tie this in to Christ because Jesus, not Paul, is our ultimate and perfect example of how to care, pray, and share encouragement with one another. We could talk about how no one cares for us like Jesus. No one is perfectly selfless, selfless like he is. He is. No one knows us like Jesus knows us. And he frees us from our self-centeredness so that we can care for one another. Jesus is our perfect intercessor in prayer. He makes prayer possible. He's our pathway to God. I could talk about how he prayed for his disciples, how he persisted in prayer, even amidst his own suffering. And Jesus continues to intercede for us today. His Holy Spirit guides us in our prayers, even prays for us. And I could talk about Jesus shares encouragement. He's the good news incarnate. His word gives us life. He says, take courage. I have overcome the world and I will never leave you or forsake you. Christ is the one who makes our koinonia, our fellowship possible. He is our encourager. But I want to ask the question, how can we care, pray, and encourage one another? I want to speak just briefly about what that has looked like in my own life. Um, For us, we've been involved in leading home groups for probably 30 years, and we've been involved in ministry teams. Um, I want to share about a story about one of those. Um, It was about 10 years ago. We got a call about midnight, and Hannah was on the phone We answered it. She said, my husband has died. Can you come? I'll just paint you the story a little bit. But uh, Hannah and Jim, the couple, and their teenage daughter were part of our home group and had been for several years. Um, We were similar in age. Our daughters were very close friends. We met regularly for food and for fellowship and for Bible study. But it wasn't long before Jim became ill. He had cancer. And he went downhill quickly. Of course, we prayed. Hannah and Jim were actually from China. They didn't have any family in the U.S. We were their family. 
And so I got that call in the middle of the night. Katie and I drove to the hospital. And it dawned on me at that moment, I'm a little clueless, but it dawned on me that somehow our relationship had become more than just friendship. We mourned together. The stigma of death in their culture was such that their family was not there to support them. You couldn't even visit in the home. In those difficult days that followed, we supported Hannah as a single parent, raising her teenage daughter, selling her home, downsizing, going back to work, finding a job. Our lives went on together, forever intertwined by the gospel. I think that's some of what Paul was talking about when he talked about koinonia. More, this, this sort of story has repeated itself many times. Um, oftentimes, I, I think it comes down to our intentional fellowship with one another. We gather for food, for Bible study, for fun, for prayer. We share life together, and somehow, koinonia, it happens. Just last week, as Rich and I were over at Margaret Elaine and David Gino's, we were there to move some boxes, as we often do. And we prayed. We've, we've shared many a meal in a Bible study in a home group with Margaret Elaine and David. Um, this time, when we prayed for David, I don't know how this happened, but Margaret Elaine hand me the ra- handed me the razor because David needed a shave. And so this is kind of out of my comfort zone, but I gave David a, a shave. And it occurred to me, I think this is a little bit more than friendship here. So that's what I think that Paul was talking about when we talk about care, prayer, and share. How would God lead you to interact this week with others through care, prayer, and sharing encouragement? Let's pray. Father, you are a God who cares. You are a God who showed us how to care. You are a God who teaches us to be selfless and to put others before ourselves. I pray that you would continue to lead us in humility and concern for one another. Help us to encourage one another. May you be glorified in our koinonia. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.